right, church, good morning. How we doing? Good, all right. Open your Bibles to James chapter two. If you're new, this is what we do. We just walk through books of the Bible. We've been in the book of James. He's Jesus' little brother. We took a break last week for something you may have heard of. Easter, okay, it was a big weekend for us. It's the Christian Super Bowl. Raise your hand if you happened to be at the four o'clock service last week. Yeah, we remember you were there. Everybody was there. It was crazy, okay? There were, we were taking chairs. Some of you don't even know there's a back there. There's a back there. From back there, we were taking chairs over there. And I had that moment, and I know this is an old reference from Jaws, because Jaws is an old movie, but do you remember that scene in Jaws where the one guy looks at the other guy? I don't know their names, okay? The one guy looks at the other guy because they just saw Jaws for the first time, and they look at each other, and they go, we're going to need a bigger boat. Okay, that's how I felt. We're gonna need a bigger boat. We're gonna need a bigger building. And we are gonna have one August of 2023. But anyway, so that was exciting. Lots of people came. I mean, you know, I'm not just gonna share all the numbers, but you know, we baptized 13 people. That was great. We had over 2,500 people on campus that weekend, which that's 1% of Winston-Salem. So that's a lot of people. So that was, yeah, that was exciting. I know, but some of you go, I don't care about the numbers, Kyle. I care about the stories. Okay, let me tell you a story, okay? Here's a brief story. So there was this one guy, and he got baptized. And well, lots of people got baptized, but this one guy gets baptized. And then I'm, you know, back in that hallway. And after he gets baptized, uh, one of the staff says, hey, do you know that his dad flew here from Beijing just to see him get baptized? Yeah, you have no excuse to not be at someone's baptism that you love, <laughs> Right? But anyway, there's just like, there was a lot of people here, you know, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that have never been here before. And that was really cool. And thanks for praying and inviting and investing. And, and again, let me, let me say this, because kind of sometimes if you come around and a lot of you are new and you've been coming around for a few weeks or you're, hello, you're checking us out online or all that kind of stuff. Um, pe- people may think, are you an event-driven church? And well, that's understandable because what we do, I guess you could say four events every weekend, you know, one on Saturday and three on Sundays, but we're not an event-driven church. We're a relationship-driven church which is why we always talk about The Weekender, okay? It's gonna be May 20th and 21st. Let me just do one quick pitch for The Weekender because it's how you move, and this is, by the way, this is your decision, obviously, but like, do you wanna be part of the crowd? Which is fine, that means like kind of remain anonymous and show up and you talk about it like it's that church, not your church. Or do you wanna be part of the connected and the committed? And, and well, you gotta to come to The Weekender. And if you come to The Weekender, this isn't the only thing that happens, but you get to be in a group and on a serving team. And guess what? Like, getting in a group's really, really important, especially when, when, and when I talk about groups, some of you go, I get overwhelmed with that, right? Like the extroverts love groups. The extroverts are like 15 people who I don't know who I get to talk to. They, woo, right? And all the introverts are like, that sounds terrible. That sounds horrible. But introverts feel more connected to the church through serving. Here's a lanyard, here's a shirt, here's a roll, here's a group, and then they connect that way. And so both are important for multiple reasons, but really for you. And what we, when we think about groups and serving teams, think about relational insurance, right? I mean, you guys have disability insurance and you've got life insurance. You've got home insurance and you've got car insurance. And well, why is that? Why do you have those things? Well, you have those things in case something terrible happens. Well, that's the same reason you have relational insurance. It's when the proverbial poo hits the fan in your life, okay? <laughs> Sorry to be so graphic, okay? When that happens, you're gonna wanna know that you have relationships, people who know and love you, people who know and love God. And so our next weekend is May 20th and 21st. If you've not taken your next step, let me encourage you to do that before the summer. Uh, with that said, let's turn, to, let's turn to James. If you've been with us in James, James, this is Jesus' little brother. He's a serious dude. And the book of James is like pine saw. Have you ever used pine saw before? Some of you need to use pine saw, but you know, maybe pine saw, okay, in your home. If you've ever used it, if, if anyone you ever, if your mom ever used it, if your grandma ever used it, you knew it. Because pine saw is strong and you can smell it anywhere. The, the book of James is just, it's a strong book. And, and here's the big idea for today, okay? The big idea for today uh, from verses eight through 13, we're just gonna talk about six verses, is that it takes hard truths to make strong Christians. 
right? So what happened during, uh, it's interesting, Barna, which is an organization that surveys churches, they did this mass survey uh, during and kind of in between and after COVID and all that kind of stuff. And what they found out is that on the other end of COVID, people said they want deeper sermons. They want longer sermons. They want people to preach through books of the Bible because when times get darker, we need to go deeper. I was talking to this one pastor and he's a large church pastor and he said, oh yeah, during the pandemic, I started preaching through books of the Bible. I had never done that before. I thought, what were you doing? You know? <laughs> but but they, they were do, it's fine. They were doing topical stuff and that's fine. So, but okay, so, so you know, going deeper. So here's what we're gonna do today. I'm doing what we call in the church world, this is a seat clearing sermon, okay? So it's been really crowded the last few months here and some of you need to get offended and leave. No, I'm just kidding. I hope not, but that may happen, okay? Uh, and so what I'm doing is I'm doing the opposite of what every church growth book says you should do. So what I'm about to do right now, I'm doing the exact opposite of what every church growth guru tells me I should do, which is I'm gonna talk for about 45 minutes on sin and law and judgment. And we'll see who comes back next week, okay? So let's look at verse eight. So here we go. Uh, verse eight, we'll spend a lot of time on this one. If you really fulfill the royal law, so there's law, this is the first thing we're gonna talk about. So you gotta fulfill the royal law. Why is it called royal? We'll get there. According to the scripture, and then he, here's the royal law in a sentence, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Okay, so what is the law? Well, I don't know. Today, most Americans don't, you know, we're not real into laws. We're not real on the rules. We kind of have a lot of anti-authority sentiment, okay? But the Bible might make you uncomfortable how much it loves laws. Like next time you wanna feel a little uncomfortable, open up your Bible to basically the middle of your Bible and there'll be, if you get right toward the middle, you're gonna find Psalm 9, 119. And Psalm 119, I mean, it's a long Psalm. It'll, some of us, it will take us, you know, 30 minutes to read through all of it. It's long. And it will make you really uncomfortable because it says things like this, oh, I love your law, Lord. Like it's, it has verses in it that's like, Lord, command me. Lord, I love it when you tell me what not to do. You're like, this is so awkward. But it's this positive view of the law. See, Christians and the law, and when I say the law, I'm talking about, well, you could say the 613 commandments or you could say the 10 commandments, okay? Or in, by one sense, you could say the whole Bible, the Old Testament law. Christians don't know what to do with the law. Like we've been trying to figure this out for 2000 years. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, that monk, okay? The famous monk who you know, started the Reformation. He said the, a Christian, the average Christian, when it comes to the law, is like a drunk man riding home on a horse. He says what happens is the drunk man, because he's drunk, he falls off to the left side. And he says the left side of the horse is called legalism. And legalism is what I talked to you about last week. It's moralism, it's religion, it's the law is a ladder, which the law isn't a ladder, here's why. Every time a ladder shows up in the Old Testament, it's not us putting a ladder to heaven, it's a ladder comes down from heaven. We never go up it, God always comes down it. So we know the law isn't a ladder, but for legalism, it's like the law is like, we forget the law is a means to an end. In legalism, we act like it's the end. We forget that the law is a reflection of the lawgiver who we wanna have a relationship with and we just focus on the law. And that's really, really dangerous, okay? And I had one lady and she came up to me and she said, she said, Kyle, she said, after the Easter sermon, she said, I had to take my family out into the parking lot. We, we couldn't even get in the car. If you were here last week, and she said, and I just had to ask for forgiveness for religion in my home. But that's how I raised my kids. And by the way, what, here's how you know that you probably raise your kids in a religion home because what they do when you raise kids in a religion home is as soon as they get the chance, they, they fall off the other side of the horse. As soon as they go to college, it's called rebellion or it's called license. 
So there's legalism. I need the law. It's only the law. We need more laws about the laws, more rules about the rules. And then, and then license is the other side of the horse, and that's we don't need the law. And certain churches and certain denominations and certain networks can fall into that. And it's like, okay, can we overemphasize grace? Oh, well, probably not, okay? Obviously, if we're gonna like talk about it rightly, like grace is every, we love grace. But can we talk about grace in such a way that the law doesn't make sense anymore? Yeah, and that's not healthy. So I had a guy, and he came to me one time, and he was telling me the church he came from. And he was trying to articulate it. I was like, well, tell me, you know, because I'm interested, like when people move here, like, well, what church did you go to? And he was kind of a funny guy. And he said, I went to one of those spiritually anxious churches. And I thought for a second. I said, what do you mean? He says, oh, he says, the pastor just told us we're okay the whole time. Well, Jesus died for you, and God forgives you, and there's lots of grace and mercy. And it was interesting, as the guy says, but my marriage was falling apart. I didn't need to just know that God forgives my marriage. I needed help in my marriage. Like, I was bitter at work, and I didn't need to hear Jesus died for my bitterness. I needed to hear that, and then I needed to hear, like, what would be three things that would be helpful so I wouldn't be as bitter anymore? And so, and so the, the right relationship to the law is that God accepts me, therefore I obey. That's the right way. It's God saves me, and it, so think about the Exodus, which I taught on years ago, but in the Exodus account, uh, Moses, God, through Moses, saves a people out of slavery, and once they're saved... They're out of Egypt. They're through the Red Sea. Ah, then he gives them the law. And so let's talk about the law for just a little bit. What is the law? And then we're going to get into the royal law, and, and then we'll talk about sin, and then we'll talk about judgment, and then we'll all go home, okay? Um, but let's talk for a second. What is the law? The law is a reflection and a representation of who God is. And so that's what you need to know about the law. The law expresses the character of God and what he cares about and his desires. This is why when you break God's law, you break God's heart. This is why, and you've probably never asked this question because only seminary students with too much time ask this question, but, you, but there has been a debate of like, well, could God have created a law different than the law that currently exists? I mean, could the 10 commandments have been different? Could coveting in some universe that God creates, would it have been okay to covet? Or could it be okay to lie? Or would it be right to steal? And the answer to that is no, because the law is an expression it's a representation of what God is. It's like if you came to my house, and I don't do this, but if you came to my house and I said, take your shoes off. Like, are we in Asia? Okay, and so you took your shoes off, you know? And then I said, hey, wash your hands. And then you, you notice that I was telling my kids to get a shower, and, I, and you're gonna think, there's all these rules in this house about cleanliness. Kyle must care a lot about this. The rules represent what someone cares about. Okay, so first it's a representation. The second, it's, it's, a, it's what they call the civil use of the law. It restrains things. And, Basically, you know, every once in a while, people will say foolish things like you can't legislate morality. Well, that's all we legislate. But how it works is like the restraining purpose of the law is basically saying this, because there is laws, you're not as bad as you otherwise would be. And here's how you know this. Imagine you could put on a ring that made you invisible. Socrates, I believe, said this. Maybe it was Aristotle. Or if you're a Harry Potter fan, the cloak of invisibility, okay? Whatever you want to put on, okay? And you're invisible. Now, what would you do when you were invisible? Yeah, I'm sure. You'd go, you'd go help the poor people so they wouldn't know it was you. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> probably not on the top of your list to do. In fact, if you're honest, maybe a dark side of you won't even wouldn't want to say out loud what you might be tempted to do if no one see it, saw you and there were no video cameras and you knew you wouldn't get caught. So, well, that's the civil use, the restraining nature of the law. The law shows us our sin, and we'll thank God for that, right? The law, what the law does is it it reveals what's in your heart. It shows you the rebellion that's there. So when I, when I was growing up, I had great parents. And when I was in middle school, my parents were, were pretty flexible with me on stuff. And they were like, hey, listen, you can listen to anything 
except we don't want you to buy any parental advisory CDs. By the way, a CD, it was this disc back in the day. And it, you only had like 10 or 15 songs on it. Okay. Anyway, they, they told me, hey, you could, I, I, we don't care rap or you know, alternative. We don't care what you listen to as long as it's not parental advisory. Well, what did I want? Because of that, I desperately wanted the parental advisory sticker. I desperately wanted those CDs that revealed that. But the fourth purpose of the law is the law is a compass. You're right. I mean, it's like, well, you know, what purpose is the law once you're a believer? Well, it's like, well, you know, do you know how to live? Well, maybe in some areas, but probably not. And your parents did an okay job, but not perfect. And your conscience is probably, you know, in some areas wrecked and ruined. And you've probably been doing things you shouldn't have been doing and you think they're okay. And well, then you've been influenced by our culture and that's not been as helpful. Well, in some areas it has, but not in all areas. Okay, well, then you need the law. So the law is a compass. Now, so that's kind of the background on the law, but then you gotta ask the question, what is the royal law? Why is it called the royal law? And the royal law is love your neighbors yourself. So what, 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 why royal? Royal, is, it's because it's from King Jesus. Well, he's a king. So he gave that rule. In fact, he even expanded it in John 13, where he says, I want you to love other people as I have loved you. It's like, okay, wow. To death, to sacrifice, to giving all of myself, wow. But it, it's, it's royal because Jesus gives it. It's royal because it's the law that reigns and rules over all the other laws. And thank God for that because there's 613 laws and even the 10 commandments is a lot and it's hard to think about all the time. But you know this, if you just thought about, well, if I, if I love my neighbor as myself, I won't, well, I wouldn't covet their stuff. I wouldn't lie to them. Like, I wouldn't lust after them. If I love them as myself, I would obey these rules. It's like, okay, well, that's why it's called the royal law. And then it's called the royal law because it actually makes you treat other people like royalty. Okay, so, so last, or two weeks ago, Spencer did a great job talking about that partiality passage, one through seven in James, where it basically says, hey, a rich guy comes in and you're really nice to the rich guy and you're nice to the rich guy because, well, he may give you something, you know? So they're really nice to the rich guy. And then a poor guy comes in, he doesn't have the right clothes on, he's not gonna be helpful, he looks super needy. They're not as nice to him. They're not nice to him at all. But if you read the passage carefully, the problem was not how well they treated the rich person. The point of that passage is treat, the point of that passage is not treat rich people worse. The point of the passage is why don't you treat everybody like they're rich? Or we would say it this way, why don't you treat everybody like they're a celebrity? Because what is a celebrity? A celebrity is someone you think is special. And what is every person? Well, if they're made in God's image and Christ died for them, then you better bet they're special. I mean, think about it. If you went out to lunch after this and you're at, this wouldn't happen, but you're at lunch and you look over and you go, oh my goodness, I don't know why he's here, but I think that's Tom Brady. And you just look over, you would have that thought in your mind, he's special. I don't know what you would do with that. You might be like, can I get a picture? How do I say something? Why is he in Winston? You know, you, he's too special to be here, you know? Um, and so the, the whole point is, is, is so anyway, so that's, that's the whole idea of the royal law. Now, now we get the definition of the royal law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Now you may ask, so to do that, you have to ask, well, who's my neighbor? And thankfully, Jesus actually was asked that question. Jesus, they asked him, who, you know, and he has, in response to being asked who's my neighbor, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, okay? And I can't tell you that whole story. I, I've taught on that before, but um, the answer to who is my neighbor is whoever is near me in need, which is not what you wanted to hear, <laughs> right? Whoever is near you in need, it's like, well, that person's your neighbor. Well, it's at least, you know, it's at least actually your neighbor, like the person who lives next door. That's definitely your neighbor. Um, and the reason that we don't like that is we like that we live in this culture where we say things like, I love the world. It's like, what does that mean? I love my city. Love equals love. It's like, dude, when you love everybody, you love nobody. And so it's that specific love of like, who's my neighbor? And, and, and the Bible teaches what's called moral proximity. Helpful to know. Moral proximity, it's a doctrine Christians have believed 
which says I'm most responsible for the people closest to me relationally and locationally. It's why there's passages that say, hey, if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Why? They're too close to you. They are locationally and relationally the closest. It's why Galatians 6 says, hey, do good to everybody, but especially the household of faith. Well, what's the household of faith? It's your local church. That's why we have a benevolence fund. That's why churches historically have had a benevolence fund. That's why we feel responsible. If there's a member of our church in need, we feel responsible in a way that we don't feel responsible for every Christian in the world who's in need. So you kind of have this whole idea of, okay, well, who's my neighbor? Okay. And then you would say, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. So then you have to go, well, what is love? Well, it's certainly not sentimentalism. And it's certainly not unchecked compassion. That'll get you in trouble. Now, we did a Compassion Sunday. I believe in compassion organization. I believe in compassion, the biblical virtue. I do not believe in unchecked compassion where the virtues of self-control and self-restraint are not connected to it because you'll do a bunch of foolish things and then you'll regret them. So, okay, it's like, well, what is it then? It, okay, it's, it's I love them. It's I'm committed to their highest good. Okay, well, then this is interesting. Here's what's really interesting. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see in that passage, the Bible assumes you love you? We live in this culture. It's like, hey, man, you just don't love yourself. You need to work on loving yourself. Why don't you journal for a little bit about how great you are? Are you doing enough self-esteem and self-care? Do you have people in your life telling you how awesome you are? It's like, listen, I get it. There's a few people who really struggle with some self-image stuff, and it's deep, and I get that. The Bible assumes you love you. It's part of the problem sometimes. But, but even, but even self-pity is usually a sophisticated form of me loving me. I can't believe that things are going so bad for someone as awesome as me. That, that's a version of self-pity. Okay, so he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how do you love yourself? You love yourself. Here's how you love yourself. You love yourself basically like this. You really do. If you've ever heard love the, um, love the sin or hate the sin, that is what you do with yourself. I mean, think about the last time you really sinned and messed up. You basically usually broke yourself in half. Like half of you beat yourself up. And, you know, you did it because you know you shouldn't have done it. And then the other half of yourself, like, comforted yourself. You're like, all right, I'm not that bad. You know, I still love me. Let's, even talking to yourself, let's go get a meal. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it's like, you'll, you'll do that. You'll have this weird, like, I love me, though I hate what I did. It's like, well, that's how you're supposed to love your neighbor. And you're supposed to meet their needs especially if they're near you. Well, then, then that's the law. I want to show you about sin. This is interesting. If we go to verse nine, he says this, but if you show partiality, see last week or two weeks ago, uh, Spencer talked about partiality with people. This week, he talks about partiality with parts of the Bible and passages. So look at this. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So here's what he's saying. If you read that passage, it's saying, hey, there's people when they, they focus on certain parts of the Bible and they say, hey, I'm doing well in this area. And so they think they're doing well. And he says, but if you're not, if you say do not, you don't commit adultery, but you're committing murder, you're, you're breaking all of it. He's talking about the unity of the law. It's this whole idea, and see if this is true for you. Most people, and I bet most of you do, think you're doing well in every area except for one. And it's different, right? But this happens all the time. I see this all the time. People are like, I'm doing well in all, every area except I drink too much. Other than that, it's, I mean, other than that, things are, you know, I'm doing well in every area except I am a workaholic. 
I'm doing well in every area except I'm kind of the porn guy occasionally. Right? I'm doing well in every area except I'm the wife who flips out on her husband and her kids on a somewhat consistent basis. But, but other than that, I mean, I'm good, right? I break one part of the law. What's interesting, there, there was a book by a guy named Heath Lambert. I recommend it. It's called Finally Free. It's a book. I recommend it to lots of people. It's a book uh, dealing with temptation and addiction, but particularly sexual sin. And it's interesting. He says that what will happen is guys will come in to his office. He's a pastor. And they'll say something like this. And you may have said something like this about whatever it is. They'd come into, him, they'd come into his office and they would say something like, hey, listen, I feel like I'm doing, I've been a Christian for 10 years. I'm doing really good in every area except with chronic masturbation or except with this porn addiction. And he would say, every area. Have you read any of the verses on pride? Because if you don't know this, prideful people look at porn. It's actually an issue of pride we're talking about here. And what, that's the only area. Have you ever thought about gratefulness and thankfulness? Because ungrateful people look at pornography. He said, have you ever thought about all, I don't know how much time you spend looking at pornography, but have you ever read all the verses on doing good works? Because those are all the good works that you're not doing while you're looking at pornography. What is he trying to show people? What is he trying to show us? What are, what are we, it's like, it's all connected. I'm not just in one area. I'm in every area. It, everything's connected to everything, and that's what we hate. But it's true. Now, how do we talk about this? How do we talk about, you heard the words, transgression, sin, unbelief, disobedience. Well, it's hard to talk about in our culture today because, right, I mean, you don't sin, you, uh, you have baggage. You don't sin, you have struggles. You don't sin, you have like some genetic stuff. You don't sin, maybe. maybe. You don't sin, you're just sick. Or what happens? I mean, how many times have we seen someone, it could be a politician, it could be a, a coach, it could be anybody, they, they get, and you know what they're gonna do. I, I'm like, I've seen this movie. I've watched this play. They have a moral failure. They do the exact same thing. Tell me if you've ever seen this before. They get up on stage, their wife's standing next to them, embarrassed. And they stand up and they say these exact words. I've let myself down. And I've let my family down. And I've made some mistakes. And I had an indiscretion. Thank you. So what, what was missing? Well, sin. I mean, we don't even talk about it. We don't take sin seriously at all anymore. So, so here's what would happen. About 100 years ago, if a woman was jealous of her better-looking sister, and there'd be reasons to be jealous of a better-looking sister. Maybe she married better. Maybe now she has more money. Maybe everybody's always been nicer to her because of that. Uh, who knows? But, but a woman who's jealous of her better-looking sister say 100 years ago, if this persisted across time, would question her salvation. How could someone like me, if I'm really born again, how could I care about something so trivial across time? What does it say about my soul? Or, or a guy who had a tendency to yell at his kids, be, you know, angry at his wife. 50 years ago, that guy would probably not take communion until he felt like that was an issue he got repented of. And I know we, I say that a lot, and it's like, dude, that's intense. It's like, well, maybe we've fallen off the other side of the horse, and we haven't taken these things seriously enough. So I want, I want to give you the, the, the words in the Bible for disobedience and distrust. 
First word is sin, okay? And you know this word. You see it. It's in this passage. It talks about committing sins. Sin means, see, the Bible's, if you're new, the Bible's way more practical maybe than you even realized. Because though sin is a deeply theological word, it literally is an archery term. It means to miss the mark which I don't even know if you understand how deeply that speaks to you because what you and I love to see, maybe more than almost anything, is somebody hit the mark. Like, why do we watch sports? Like, why? Like, why do we wear people's jerseys and pay money to get in big, big, big stadiums? <laughs> to watch a guy shoot a ball in a hoop? But if he hits the three-pointer at the right time, you explode inside because you're like, he hit the mark. You don't say that, but that's exactly what you see. Or like if, you, you know, if you're a golf fan like me and like Tiger makes an 18-foot putt when it matters, you like will explode and stand up. Or like, what's hockey about? Well, get the puck in that goal. Well, what's football about? Well, it's complex, but it, it, you know, probably the best part of it is like, dude, hit that wide receiver. Like perfect. And it, it, the farther down you throw it and the more difficult of a catch and the more in the center of his chest that you do it, the more that we all scream. It's because we love it. And here, we're in North Carolina. What is hunting but hitting the target, right? This will surprise almost all of you, but I had my first hunting excursion two weeks ago. I know you look at me, you go, you don't look like you hunt. You're right. Okay, this was the first for me. I was at this event for pastors, and this was, I wasn't really ready for this. This was down in South Georgia, and they said to us, they said, they just said to us, the first day we get there, anyone want to go hog hunting? And I was like, that sounds pretty cool to me. So yeah, I said, I'm in. So I get, you know, then, and I really wasn't ready for it. So what we did was I got on this, you know, thing that looked like a golf cart, but it was definitely more intense than a golf cart. And we, we just went really, really deep into the woods. I'm like, we just keep going. Where are we going? And, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm goofy and loud and I don't know what I'm doing. So we get out of the car and I'm like, dude, where are we going? He goes, shh. I'm like, oh yeah, we got to be quiet. So, so we walk into here and, and I, I'm so ill-equipped. Okay. I've got my back. I think I'm going to do sermon preparation while I'm up in this, you know, stand, okay? Because I thought a stand was a treehouse. It's not, okay? As you guys know. So I, I have this backpack on, and he goes, climb this tree. And so I climb this tree, and I think there's going to be a treehouse at the top, and there's a chair. So I sat in this chair. And he says to me, I'll be back in four hours. And, and then he gives me a gun. And that was kind of scary, you know? And he said, here's this gun, and if it, be careful, because if it's red, it means that the safety's not on. And then he said, uh, in the scope, don't put your eye on the scope, because it'll hit you in the eye, and you'll have a red eye. And I thought, thank you. Okay, this is all good to know. So... So I'm sitting up in this tree stand, and it's really peaceful at first, you know, and I'm excited to be up there. And um, in four hours, okay, hour one goes by, I don't see anything. I see like this little armadillo, I'm like, okay. And, and, and another hour goes by, and I don't see anything. And another 30 minutes or so goes by, and this raccoon walks, walks by, okay? And by the way, I was doing Fisher Price hunting. I mean, they like put us in this, there was a feeder near there, okay? I see this raccoon, and I text the, the owner of the land. I said, I see a raccoon. Can I please kill it? <laughs> I really just wanted to shoot something. And he was like, he wrote me back, fire away. <laughs> and so, you know, I, this is like, for most of you, this is like nothing. You've done way more than this. But like, I, I, I pulled the gun up because, you know, and, and I just look through the scope and I see this little raccoon. I'm like, I am about to take you out. <laughs> you know, you've... Your, your family's been eating my trash cans for years, you know, kind of. And, uh, and I just, I pull the trigger and I hit the target. And I get so excited. I know, it's something little. I get so excited, I take my phone out to get a picture. 
and my hands are shaking uncontrollably. And I realize there is just an adrenaline of hitting the target. In fact, I get back in the car and we pick up another guy who's hunting and he's got bows. I'm like, what are you doing with those? He's like, I've got a gun, you've got bows? This doesn't seem fair. And he's like, oh yeah, I love it because when you bow hunt, you gotta get within 20 yards and you gotta hit the deer, right? I'm like, it's all about hitting the target. We love it. And it gives you a compassionate view, by the way, toward people because if sin is, I miss the mark. You can, re- you can, you can relate to that with your neighbors because what are they doing? Are they, in one sense, we understand they're in rebellion to God. In another sense, what's your neighbor Larry doing? Missing the mark. He thinks the mark is the American dream. How would he think anything different? He thinks the mark is staying somewhat healthy, retiring early, and taking a few cool vacations. And it gives you compassion. You're like, dude, you're missing it. You can be honest. Sometimes I miss it. Sometimes I think life's about the American dream. What's wrong with me? I've aimed too low. See, missing the mark is my standard and my motive and my goal are too low. The standard is God's word instead of how we feel and what others think. The motive is love God and love people, but we tend to love ourselves and fear God or and fear people. And the goal is to glorify God, but often our goal is to glorify ourselves. So the first thing is miss the mark. But if you look, there's another word here, and it says that two different times you'll see it says transgressor or transgression. So here's what this means. So sin is miss the mark. Transgression is I cross the line. I cross the line. It's willful disobedience. It's the net, so think about it this way. It's the same word, it's basically the same word as in the New Testament, trespass. And if you, I'm a recovering Catholic, I've told you that before. When you grew up Catholic, they teach you the Lord's Prayer and it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's basically the same word as transgression and it's helpful. So think you, imagine you go someplace and you see a fence and it says, no trespassing. There's a couple reasons it might say no trespassing. If some rich man or some rich woman may just have that property and go, get off my property. It's mine, I paid for it, it's mine. It's like, well, fair enough. Sometimes, by the way, that's how we view God. We think his no trespassing sign is there's something nice back here that I want for myself. That's not what no trespassing means when it comes to God. The other no trespassing signs are the no trespassing signs say no trespassing, and then you realize why it is. Oh, it's because there's bears. Thanks for the no trespassing sign. It's because this used to be a chemical waste plant. I wouldn't have known that. Thanks for the no trespassing sign. So the whole idea is if you cross, we think if I cross the line, it's going to help me. And God says, if you cross the line, it's going to hurt you, right? This is what Timmy does, two-year-old Timmy. Think about two-year-old Timmy, okay? We've all either been him or we've had him, okay? (laughs) Two-year-old Timmy is, we tell him, hey, do not touch that electrical socket. And I don't know how a two-year-old's brain works, okay? But two-year-old Timmy looks at you, even though you're five times his size, 10 times his size, and goes, I don't think I'm gonna listen to you. So whatever, they can't even speak yet. They're like, nope. And they just, that's willful disobedience. And, and I really believe that this is when you realize it's, it's not sin missing the mark that convicts you as much. It will. It's I actually intentionally cross the line. It's that I actually plan out evil things. You look back and you realize, man, when I was a high schooler, I planned what I would do when my parents left. Some people still plan what they'll do when their spouse leaves. Some people still plan what they're going to do on their vacation, long time in advance. Heard a story recently, a pastor said a young couple, this wasn't in our church, but a young couple came to him and they, conf- I don't know if they were dating or whatever, they came and they confessed. They said, hey, it got real passionate. We accidentally had premarital sex. 
and this pastor, I don't know how seasoned he was, but he said, did you use protection? And they said, oh yeah. He goes, it was premeditated. It was premeditated. Gotcha. You stopped at the store and picked a few things up. Don't act like this was an accident. I'll tell you a dark story for a second. Is I, I had a guy, a guy I knew, not in our church, and he cheated on his wife. You know, when something like that happens, you're just like, you know, I think people ask the question, like, how does that happen? When does that begin? And I asked him about that. I said, dude, tell me. You know, he's been restored to his wife. There's been repentance, okay, all that. But I said, dude, tell me what happened. He said, man, I've had to wrestle with all of this. He said, and I, he said, so I had to go to some dark places. He said, and I realized that months before the affair, I had introduced this woman to my wife to be her friend so I could get close to her. Something happens when you realize I was playing chess, not just checkers. I was playing chess to do the sin that I've been doing. It's, it's a, some of you, this is why you don't get in a DNA group. This is why you don't get in a community group. It's part of your plan. Because if you were to get in that group and if you were to be accountable, then you couldn't do the things that you want to do. So you'll notice there that it says that when you transgress, it says in verse 9 and 10 that transgression leads to conviction, right? Now, think about what conviction is. In a court case, what happens when, when there's conviction? It's like, yeah, when, when there's conviction, here's what's said in the courtroom. You did it. There's no more doubt. You've been convicted. It's time for you to be sentenced. What we want to see happen in our own hearts, but what we want to see happen in our kids' hearts, because a lot of us have kids, and a lot of us, if we're honest, a lot of times what we want from our kids is like, I hope they... I hope they'll go to youth group. I hope they'll occasionally read their Bible. I hope they won't be in active outward rebellion that would be embarrassing. Well, how about this? I hope they come under conviction. That's what, that's what Christians used to say. That's what grandma used to pray for her grandkids. What I'd like is I don't know if it's at 8 or 18, but I want Sally under conviction. And, and when she's under conviction, everything else takes care of itself because then you realize I'm a sinner and I'm, you know, I'm a transgressor and the gospel makes sense and repentance and all the other things that then they read their Bible. Then they want to go to youth group. They're under conviction. Well, the third word is iniquity, and I won't spend a lot of time. It's not in the passage, but just so you know, iniquity is to be twisted and turned in on yourself. It's to, it literally means perverted. That's what the word iniquity means, crooked or perverted. And it's when you cross the line. What happens? Think about you trespass somewhere. And you go somewhere you shouldn't be. And then you get lost. You're like, oh, these woods. I'll go in these woods. It says no trespassing. I'll go in there. And all of a sudden, you go in there, and you keep walking deeper into these woods, and you turn around, and you go, where am I? That's called iniquity. I was talking to a guy who was heartbroken over his dad. I said, what's wrong with your dad, man? He says, my dad drinks 15 to 19 beers a night. I thought, I struggle to drink eight glasses of water a day. <laughs> 15 to 19 beers a night, that's not just missing the mark. That's not just crossing the line and getting drunk. That's a twisted relationship with alcohol at a deep level. This is what happens with pornography. People go places and more and more and more places and they find themselves like, well, where, where am I? It's like, you, kept, you trespassed. You went deep into the woods and you don't know where you are anymore. Which leads to judgment. Let me show you this. Look at verse 12 and 13. It says this. 
in light of being a sinner, in light of being guilty before the law, it says this, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we live in this crazy society right now when it comes to judgment that we want to at one level say, let's judge nobody. Let's judge nobody, which isn't realistic. But let's judge nobody. Let's just do tolerance, affirmation, approval, celebration of all lifestyles and perspectives. And at the same time, it's, and if you do one thing I do not like, I will cancel you. Whatever you think about cancel culture, who should we do it to, and is it right, and how should it be done, it's judgment, okay? And so we have this kind of question of like, okay, well, well, there's different types of judgment, by the way, okay? There's the judgment that happens in the church. So when you're part of the church, part of what you do when you join a church is you say, hey, I need help. That's part of what you say. You say, and, and what happens in the church is judgment within the church we call church discipline, and it's when brothers and sisters in Christ lovingly warn each other of the dangers of what other brothers and sisters in the church might be doing. Hey, man, you are traveling so much, it feels like you're avoiding your family. And I've noticed this because you, you haven't been in a group the last couple weeks, and you actually really seem short with your wife, and, man, I just want to tell you that I don't see you putting your marriage as a priority, and I'm concerned about this for you long-term. That's, what's the difference between judging and discerning? They're the same thing. Not judgmentalism. I'm, I'm discerning some things, and I'm speaking into some things. And then, and then what happens, the, the real judgment that happens in the church, and we've only had to do this twice, is when you have to excommunicate somebody. Ex meaning gone and communicate, communicate part of the community. So no longer a part of the, the church family. And you only do that for people who live in unrepentant sin. We had two different guys. They both cheated on their wives. They both were completely unrepentant. And the saddest thing is when you confront them, they don't care. And you basically say some version of this, hey man, I, this is like, I don't think that someone can do what you're doing and be a Christian. I can't play JV Holy Spirit, but I don't see that as a possibility. So I no longer, I actually, I, I, I may even love you more than I used to love you, but I no longer consider you a brother in Christ. And you're welcome at our church, but we're now going to not pray for your sanctification, we're praying for your salvation. And we're now treating you as an unbeliever. So there's judgment in the church. There's judgment that's built into to the fabric of creation. It's called sowing and reaping. And you know this, because what, what is the future? Like, here's an interesting way to think about the future. The future is a judgmental father. That's what it is. I'll show you. Eat unhealthy for five years. I'll tell you what you'll see in the future, a judgmental father who you will be judged for what you just did, not eating healthy for five years. Have no relationship with your kids for five years and do not prior prioritize them. Welcome to the future. It, the future will be a judgmental father to you and you will be rightly judged for what you have done. So we know this. It's built into the fabric of creation. There's the judgment of calamity in the Bible. The judgment of calamity is, well, we, don't, we don't know how to interpret this in, in, in our modern day, but in the Old Testament, they, God would say, hey, my people have rebelled. My people have forgotten me. My people have forsaken me. I'm gonna bring famine, or I'm gonna bring sword, or I'm gonna bring earthquake to wake them up as a judgment. There's the judgment of God's passive wrath on our life. It's when, you know, people, because I've had this happen. I've had college students say before, well, I'm doing this, and I'm sleeping with girls, and I don't feel guilty at all. I'm like, that's called the passive wrath of God. That's not something to boast in. That's something to be terrified about. God has removed a, a grace from your life, and God has given you over to your sins. But then there is the final judgment, and that's what this is talking about, the final judgment, which is what I want to talk about. So when you die or Christ returns, you're going to face a final judgment. And I want to talk particularly to Christians about the final judgment because I think Christians, genuine, Bible-believing, 
Jesus-loving, gospel-singing, cross-exalting, grace-talking about Christians don't know what to do with the final judgment. Like, unless you've been taught about it, it won't make sense to you. You're like, well, hold on a second. I thought Jesus died for me and like everything's cool. What do you mean a judgment? I, I thought there's, I mean, we're, I'm going to heaven for sure. God doesn't punish sin twice. It's like, well, all that's true. The Christian is going to heaven for sure and God doesn't punish sin twice. And you will be forgiven. Listen though, I want you to understand this. The gospel doesn't mean you don't go through the final judgment. The gospel means you'll make it through the final judgment. That's the difference. Everybody has to go through the final judgment. The gospel tells you you're going to be okay on the other side of the final judgment. So years ago, I was with one of my mentors, Andy Davis, godly, godly man. I actually say with no hesitation, the godliest man I've ever known, and the guy who knows the Bible better than anyone I've ever known. He's, he's memorized literally the entire New Testament. So whenever I would be with him, I would always ask him just questions. And he, would never, he never said, I've never thought about that. <laughs> he always had an answer. And I said to him one night, we were at a pastor's uh, conference, and I don't know why I asked about this. Maybe I was reading something. I can't remember. And I, but I remember where I was, and I sat outside, and I said, Andy, I said, tell me about the final judgment. And he said, immediately, he said, it's going to be really, really hard. And I said, for Christians? He said, oh, yeah. He said, that verse about wiping away tears, we all think that that verse is about the sad things that happen in our life, and I'm sure it is. But when it says God's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes, it's the tears of us at our final judgment crying over our lives, Christian. Why did I give so little? Why did I care so much about what wasn't important? How could I have wasted so much of my youth? How could I have shared Christ with so few people? How could I have gone back to the same sins again and again and again? Just weeping over your life. He said, it's going to be unbelievably hard. And then he said this, and then it's going to be over. And it's actually, by the way, it's part of how God honors you. I mean, imagine it. This, is a, a, this isn't a perfect illustration, but imagine you hired some employee, and he was a great employee, or she was a great employee, and you hired them. And you paid them well, and they did important things. How would you honor them? You'd give them feedback. It's part of honoring you. It's like, listen, man, you've been working for me, and you're doing a great job. There's a couple things you're not doing well, and I want to tell you about them, because I know you're trying to work hard. The, the final judgment is the way God honors us. But listen, we don't die and disappear. Hitler wishes he died and disappeared. We don't die and there's reincarnation. We pay off our karmic debt. Uh, we don't die and whatever we think happens to us, happens to us, which is what Americans think. Americans somehow think that whatever I think happens to me when I die is what happens to me. It's like that doesn't work anywhere else. I wish that whatever I thought happened to me would happen to me. I will win the lottery tomorrow, you know? No, it doesn't work that way. Whatever I think happens to me doesn't get to happen to me. There's objective truth. And so here's why this is so important. If you look at verse 13, it says mercy triumphs over judgment. It doesn't say, interestingly enough, it doesn't say mercy instead of judgment. It says mercy triumphs, which literally means boasts or wins over judgment. Why is that? It's because God didn't choose mercy or judgment. He chose to give us mercy by judging Christ instead of us. Our hope of making it through the final judgment 
is that Jesus Christ was judged instead of us. But do you see what verse 13 says there? Verse 13 also says something very interesting. It says that if the one who shows no mercy, no mercy will be shown in his judgment. And I want to talk to us for a second about something because, particularly to the Christian, you're going to make it through the final judgment because of Christ. But how the judgment feels for you will be dependent on how merciful you were to other people. How do you want your judgment to feel? Do you want God looking into every motive and looking into every little thing and asking about it and making a big deal of little things? Is that what you want to do? If you want God to be merciful to you on judgment day, if you would like your judgment day to be full of mercy, then what you need to start doing now is being merciful to other people. To say, listen, I am trying to forgive you. I am trying to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give you a second chance. I, I'm not going to tell anyone. Just, we'll keep this between us. We'll work on this. You know, years ago, pastor mentor of mine told me that he had, this wasn't at our church, he had a staff come to him. You know, imagine this, because religious people are tough, you know, and church people can be tough. And the staff person came to the senior pastor and said, dude, I messed up. He said, man, I just, you know, I drank too much and I went driving and I got a DUI. It's one of those stupid DUIs. It's like one of those, I had two IPAs and I didn't need any chips and I got home and it was a short drive and I got pulled over. And the pastor said, you know, I had to think about it. I had to think what kind of church were we going to be? And he said, I thought about it and I said, you know what, we're going to figure this out together. We're going to walk through this and I'm going to extend mercy to you. And I said, don't you want to be that type of person? Don't we, want to be, don't we want to be the type of church where people's lives can fall apart? Because if we will be merciful, that's the type of mercy that we're going to get on Judgment Day back from God. Let's pray. I don't know who you need to be merciful to. I don't know if some of you, I would imagine, your marriages, there's just no mercy You would not want God to deal with your sin the way that you've been dealing with your spouses. For some of you, it's your kids. It's like they're young and it's hard, and, but they need mercy. Yes, they need rules, but they need lots of hugs. They need lots of second chances. They need lots of forgiveness. Some of you, it's your employees. And I know it's hard. There's lots of them, and you're trying to be a good boss as well. And Some of it's just your dad or it's your, who knows, it's someone in your life that was just, you know, you look back and maybe you could say they did the best they could and I'm upset, but I'm going to show mercy. Lord, we ask that you would show us mercy, Lord. We ask, what do we want? We want you to take everything into account, Lord. We want you to go easy on us. We don't want you to look into every motive. We don't want you to make assumptions. We want you to be gracious with us, Lord. Help us to be gracious with others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.